Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Another curling event is in the books. We've got so much to talk about. Kevin, you all ready? Are you all set? I'm, I'm ready, Jimmy. You waited. You paused. Well, I, you're fine. <laughs> Kevin's on his way to Vegas. That's good, Kev, because you haven't traveled very much lately. Okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Hanson, you're all set. You're in BC with, you know, Kevin and I are still shoveling driveways and you're picking apples out there. So Golfing. Stick yeah. around, everyone. We're going to get a show underway. No, you don't get to talk, Warren. Okay. Not yet. <laughs> I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Okay, boys, uh, off we go. Another show and so much happening. We'd like to fully recognize and thank all our sponsors. Sports Interaction brings you what is happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost is the sponsor of Mailbag, and we get a lot of mail. We love it. Coyote Tractor looks after hot rock topics and story time. This week's going to be Kevin, who's got a story. Uh, That's brought to you by Meridian. And we've got a great guest. Pierre Charette is coming up, just coached Team Switzerland. And, of course, they are the world champions, so we're going to be excited to talk to him. And that's brought to you by gold line the women's world uh, wrapped up we're going to get your uh, take on all of that stuff kev what you thought and warren rachel holman announced a new addition to their team and not just anyone tracy flurry is going to join that team where is she going to fit in next week kev you're off to vegas as we said the men's worlds starts there the canadian juniors starts this weekend also hot rock topics the wcf was supposed to do a bunch of rule changes they ended up only doing one we're going to get an update on that stuff from you and warren emails We've got a couple of interesting ones. Hope we can get to both of them. And in the house, like I said, Pierre Charette's going to join us and talk about the win that was, oh my God, swept the field, never lost. Her percentage was way up. Of course, he coached team Silvana Terranzoni. Kevin, do you got a good story for us? We, we like your stories. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I'll try my best. It's a surprise. Yeah, good, good deal. Okay. Very good. Lots to talk about. Brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker. You've got to be 19 and play responsibly. And everyone loves it, by the way. They're getting uh, lots of action on the curling. The first time they did it, Warren, I think you told me in the first 10 minutes they had 7,000 bets or something. So check it out. People are having a lot of fun doing that. Women's Worlds ended in Prince George. Uh, Kevin, you were there. Warren, you watched every draw, I think. I watched a bunch of it. It was great. The story of the week, of course, was uh, Team Switzerland Terranzoni wiping everybody out with an unbelievable percentage. So, Kev, give us your wrap. First of all, I just want to congratulate Prince George. They had to wait two years, Jimmy, because, of course, the teams were all there two years ago, ready to go, and then and COVID hit, and, and it all got canceled. So the crowds were there. It was terrific. Host committee did a great job. Congratulations to them. I think it's important that Team Turkey, a team out of Turkey, was in the women's world. And they put on a really good show. They ended up going 2-9, and nine, but could have easily won a couple more games. Actually, a really good curling team. But I want to congratulate them. And also the Czech Republic. They replaced Russia at the last minute. They only had three or four days to get ready uh, at home before they had to get on the plane and get all the tests done and get all the stuff done and get there. And, and it was just a bedlam. So they made it and played really, really well. So congratulations to them as well. There's some things that people had to do to, to make it all work. You know, you're still in the COVID times. It's just not easy. At the Olympics, Great Britain, even Mirrorhead Scotland, won the gold. Japan wins the silver and Sweden wins the bronze. Here at the Women's World Championships, Switzerland wins the gold. 
Korea wins the silver, and Canada wins the bronze. That's six different countries winning the six different medals at the Worlds and the Olympic Games. So how's the parody of women's curling worldwide? It's amazing. In the semis here, though, Sweden actually beat the U.S. in a play-in game, I guess they call it, into the Final Four. And Sweden made one of the best shots you're ever going to see in curling. I was actually looking at this. This is an angle raise. The Roxy angle raise was pretty much fully buried behind a corner guard. And nobody really saw it, hardly except her. She saw it the whole end, waited and waited and waited until her first one. She played it made the angle raise, and that was it. Uh, Team U.S. didn't really have anything after that. What an amazing game that was. Canada beat Denmark in the other play-in game. And then you go to the semifinals where Switzerland beat Sweden. Switzerland undefeated through the entire week, beat Sweden 7-5. Team Korea played very, very well against Kerry Anderson and won 9-6. So that put Canada against Sweden in the bronze game. Canada winning that. So congratulations to Canada on winning the bronze. And then gold, silver, Switzerland against Korea. And this Korea team wouldn't give up. Switzerland got up early in this game, but Team Korea just wouldn't give up. They're fighting back and, and drawing so well, and the game ends up tied going home. And Korea actually has a rock in the back forefoot. There's a kicker of, and this is the key, the kicker of Switzerland's is not shot rock. Korea could have put a rock top four on the center line. It would have been an incredibly tough shot for Switzerland because if they play the double, it jams on the on the side Switzerland rock. But in the end, Team Korea came a little bit deep and Alina Petz made a, a nice shot to win their third world championship. So they have set a record now. First ladies team to win three world championships back to back to back. And huge congratulations to Silvana and Alina Esther and, and Melanie. Just uh, terrific. And and Pierre Shred too. Let's not forget about Pierre. Yeah. Uh, congratulations to Pierre, too, as the coach. Is the skip, Kevin, for Korea, like, like the, the coolest, calmest <laughs> skip I've ever seen? Like, I, I mean, she never, she'd throw a rock and then sort of put her, rest her chin in her hand, you know, and I'm like, this is a big shot. She's a little relaxed. What a cool customer, Kevin. <laughs> Definitely a cool customer. Relaxed all the time. Doesn't really worry about anything. I should also mention Carol uh, Howell, who's the fifth for Switzerland as well. Played quite a lot and played really well when she played. The last few games, they actually gave people half games off. And that's another thing. They go undefeated and they're even rotating their team so that everybody got a break. They wanted to make sure everybody was, was sharp at the end. So they gave them extra rest. Oh, like really well done. Well, well coached, well thought out. But Carol was another huge player on that team because not every team has a fifth that can just jump in at lots of different positions and play it pretty much 90%. Like It didn't matter who was throwing lead, who was throwing second. The whole team of five was pretty much at 90%. What do you say, Warren? What did you take away from this week? Well, certainly the outstanding play of the Swiss team had to be the highlight of the entire week. 14-0, that's an unbelievable record. But I've analyzed uh, some of the stats to some degree and sort of tells you where I think curling is going at the world level. I'm calling it the new goal standard, 90%. If I look at the Swiss team, in the semifinal game against Sweden, Elena Pet shot 93%. As a team, they shot 87. Hasselberg's team were no slouches. They were at 80. Hasselberg herself was 75, but they were just overpowered. To the final, a little tighter. Pat's again, 93%. Kim, 86. Switzerland as a team, 93%. Korea, 87. And so that was a closely fought game, but again, the Swiss just overpowered them. If you look at Canada and going into the playoffs, so the first game they played Denmark, pretty good game for the Canadian team. They were 88% as a team. Kerry Ineson was 83. And of course, the Danish team was a little below. They were at 78%, 10 points behind them. Then you look at the semifinal game against Korea, and it's very noticeable. Canada only shot 77%, but so did Korea. That was a tight game, but Kerry Ineson was below Kim, and that was probably the difference in that game. Then we go into the bronze medal game. Einerson, 83%. They shoot 88 as a team. Hasselberg was 89%. Sweden, overall, as a team, was 86 almost right there. And, of course, that game, how close it was, told you that they were both playing well. So I think what you're seeing as we move forward here, to do well at the world level, 
men's and women's. I look at the Olympics. I also look at uh, the women's. You're going to have to be shooting in the high 80s or low 90s if you want to come out as a winner consistently. And uh, I think that's going to be the gold standard going forward. It's going to be the 90% rule, I think, at World Curling. I noticed the commentators a lot uh, were saying uh, the, the day's over where Canada's supposed to run the table, obviously. And they were all saying, you know, the team to beat is Hasselborg. The team to beat is Switzerland. And, and Canada wasn't always <laughs> in there in that conversation. Um, but what an event it was. Rachel Holman. Kevin has uh, announced she's going to put Tracy Fleury on her team. We don't know which position, but boy, that's a big announcement. This is the month of teams breaking up. But at the same time, uh, Anderson's team announced they would stay together. Also, this is interesting, Warren, and you should should be a proud day for you, Warren, every time you hear that a mixed doubles team is going to dedicate their whole year and, and you know the rest of their curling career, maybe, to mixed doubles. And that's Laura Walker and Kurt Myers. Kev, what, what do you think about all this? Well, well, Rachel Holman and Tracy Fleury, that's, that's an interesting combination with Emma and Sarah Wilkes, of course. And, and so Sarah going back to Ontario and, and Emma, of course, in Ontario and Rachel from Ontario. So that, that makes sense. Those three, they play together and, and bringing in Tracy Fleury is the import. But I guess who plays what position is my, because, you know, Tracy doesn't sweep a lot or hasn't swept a lot. Maybe she can. I don't, I don't know. But geez, Rachel, such a good skip. But so is Tracy. So but imagine one of those two would throw third. Emma can, and Sarah could certainly play strong front end. Emma could play anywhere, I'm sure. Uh, really strong sweeper. Sarah's a really strong sweeper. So like the four curlers, are they really good? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. All four curlers are really good. Mm-hmm. But how do they set up the team? I'm, I'm really excited to, to find out. The two super strong sweepers, Emma and Sarah at the front end, and uh, Tracy and, and Rachel at the back end. Who skips? I don't know. You've got lots of choices. <laughs> right. And then no matter who you choose, if you choose Rachel or if you choose uh, Flurry, Tracy, you're good. Either way, you're strong. Rachel ain't giving up the skip position, Kev. I can tell you right now. She's too competitive. <laughs> she ain't giving that up. <laughs> Warren, what are your thoughts on all this? Yes, that's uh, going to be a, a team to watch and, and what move they're going to make. I'm kind of wondering, Rachel's had some struggles, particularly this last year, skipping. And uh, things just haven't worked out, I think, as well as they'd like to. So I'm thinking maybe she may start out anyway and let Tracy skip at the start and see how that goes. I think, I think you're going to see a little switching back and forth would be my thoughts as to who may end up being the person throwing the last rock. But it'll be quite interesting to watch and see what's happening. Uh, Laura Walker, Kirk Myers, that's uh, another uh, interesting move. And I think uh, we're going to see more people probably doing this as mixed doubles grows. They will become dedicated mixed doubles teams. There's a few of them now, not a lot, but... Uh, this is probably the first amalgamation of two top-line curlers who were on top four-person teams this year have said, nah, we're not going to do that for the next four years. We're going to do mixed doubles. So we'll be watching. Kev, this is the week when teams said, we're going to make an announcement. Watch our Twitter. We're going to have a press conference. And all it's been is uh, we're breaking up. We're breaking up. <laughs> Carrie Anderson, congratulations to them, by the way. They won the bronze. They announced, Kev, they're going to stay together. Uh, right move for them? They're a really strong team. It seems like to me, watching them, this whole event in Prince George, they get along great. I, I'm not surprised, not surprised a bit. I'm really happy that they're actually staying together. That's a really, really strong team that won't change. So there's no growth needed. They're just going to be strong again and try to win their another uh, Canadian championship to add to their three. So Warren, the Canadian Juniors is underway in Stratford. Bring us up to speed on all of that. Well, there's probably lots to talk about here. It started last weekend. It's in Stratford, Ontario, but a lot of things new for the juniors. So for the first time since 1994, this event is being played in the latter part of March. And we talked about this on the show quite a bit uh, last year and the fact that Curling Canada decided to do something here to some degree being pressured by the provincial associations because they felt the junior season was too short when the national was played the final part of January. So they moved it back to where it was in... uh, 1994, which causes a couple of issues. The first one is it now means that the junior winners from this year will not play in the World Juniors till next year, a situation that existed for probably 20 years uh, before 1995 and it was changed. Kevin lived through it. I lived through it for 20 years. I know the problems that are created by taking a team a year later at the junior age. So we'll see what happens with that one. The other interesting thing that's happened here, this is an 18-team event like the Briar and Scotties, and I guess everybody was wondering, how come 18 teams? 
What's happened? Nunavut has not sent a men's team or a women's team, and uh, the Yukon has not sent a men's team. So there's been some spaces created there. But I think Curling Canada looked at it. Probably not a bad idea, the fact that uh, the COVID situation the last couple of years has been a bunch of junior teams that maybe should have been in the Canadian National, didn't have the opportunity. And you've got Alberta 1, Alberta 2, et cetera, et cetera, to form up the 18 teams. They started playing last weekend. It's going to be concluded this Friday, I believe. Up until this point in time, just like the Brian Scotties, there's two pools of nine. On the women's side, Alberta 1, which is Serena Gray-Withers, is doing quite well. And in the B pool, Nova Scotia 1, Taylor Stevens is doing A-OK. Over in the men's side, Saskatchewan number 1, Damon Barrett doing very well. And on the B side, Jordan McDonald from Manitoba is leading the pack. So that's all going to wrap up on the weekend. And uh, we wish all those teams the best of luck. Uh, yeah, time to watch for our future stars. No rest for the wicked, Kev. Uh, you're on your way down to Vegas. Men's Worlds is going to start. We've been getting your picks, you guys, in all these events. So let's go to you first, Warren. Who are you picking? Well, this is going to be a tough one because we've got a lot of teams that were in the Olympics that uh, aren't going to be in Vegas. And as I look at the whole thing, I'm almost saying this could be a two-country affair. Gushu versus Nick Adin. Young team of the USA, Corey Dropkin, their first world championship. They're the future of USA curling. So they're going to give some people a tough time. Whether they'll come through in the end to be in the final four, we'll have to wait and see. Yannick Schwaller out of Switzerland. Really good team. He's played in slams a few times. Is now going to represent that country versus De Cruz. Scotland, the best team in the world, Mollet, is not going to be there. And we've talked about that in last week's show. A young team that's going to be skipped by Kyle Waddell with Ross Patterson throwing skip rocks is going to be there. Someone from Scotland sent me an interesting note. Kyle Waddell's uncle, Jim Waddell, played against me in World Championship a long time ago. So <laughs> there is a connection. You're dating yourself. Yeah, good. And I think the other team that uh, we need to kind of watch here is Rotanos from Italy. I think they could be in the final mix. As far as the sixth team to make that uh, final playoff, I'm not sure. I'm not even going to make a pick. But I think those other five, if they're not there, will be very close. Kevin. What do you see? Canada and uh, and Sweden, Guju and, and Nicodine. When you don't have the crews in the event out of Switzerland and you don't have Bruce Mowat out of Scotland. Now, I do like Italy for Tornaz. I think they'll make the final six. I think the U.S. will. Corey Dropkin and company, they're improving a lot. And a lot of teams don't know them yet. A lot of the fans around the world don't know this team because, of course, John Schuster usually goes to all the various things all the time. This team's really good. They're, they're almost as good as Schuster, maybe even as good as John gets older. So I think that that, that is a really strong team. Yannick Schwaller, once again, you're in a tough country. Not a lot of people know that name. They're really good. And then Patterson is actually really strong and won a Grand Slam before. So those are kind of my picks. Two front runners, I believe, and then the following group. But I'm um, really looking forward to it. I think it'll be a fantastic world in, in Vegas. Really looking forward to getting there and, and getting it underway. But I just don't know if anybody can knock off the top two guys. They're just so good. Both Brad Gushu's team and Nick Adine's team are so strong. I think it's just going to be those two getting into the final four they'll win the one two spots and then everybody else battles it out to meet them but it's going to be good for a couple you know some young teams like you said they got a shot here to get in the playoffs okay thanks a lot to sports interaction that's what's been happening around the curling world curly tractor brings us hot rock topics that we're going to talk about right now they are the proud partner of team brad jacobs and the grand slam of curling coyote we dig dirt Warren, let's go to you on all this stuff the WCF was supposed to do, three world changes, then they said no, then they said yes, and then they, they just did one of them, the no tick at the Worlds. What's happening, Warren, with all this stuff from the World Curling Federation? I'm not going to talk specifically about the no tick. Uh, maybe Kevin can because he was there on site and could see what was happening game for game. I, I had a difficult time from the television end of it because you're not seeing the first rocks always uh, to know exactly what was going on. But right. this thing overall... I think needs to have a little bit of analysis. I'm certainly not against them trialing rules, but I think they need to set down a procedure of how they do this. I think they should say we're going to trial the following things for a two-year period. We will evaluate it at the end of one, which means it will continue into the second year, and the second year we'll decide whether it's going to be incorporated permanently in the third year. There needs to be a process. It needs to happen a year ahead. All these countries that were going to be involved in these world championships should have known what was going to happen. Last October should have been the decision made. This is what's going to be happening because then it gives each and every country, if they decide to go back and 
incorporate those changes into their national championships. If they have a national championship, they're now sending teams to the worlds that have already participated in that type of a change. So I think all these type of things are fine, they're okay, but I think it's got to be looked at in a little more of a planned way it's being done, and it needs to be a process. If you're going to do this type of thing, this is how you do it. That's my thoughts on it. Kevin, what do you think? It put a ton of pressure on the leads. Usually the leads, you know, they want to get the rock near the center line, obviously to cover most of the button when you're trying to steal, but getting on center line wasn't really a thing. Well, now it is. And you can see the stress on the leads having to get that rock right on center so that the other team can't take it. So that's really changed the leads play. Now it's really changed the seconds as far as defense goes. So the team with the hammer, I noticed a a ton of double peels because obviously the, the tick tick isn't made and then it's just open hits and a simple end. That's not the way it is. Like you, you get the two rocks on the center line and, and they can't be touched. They throw into the forefoot or top eight, whatever, to block the access to the button, the team with hammer. The seconds have to throw double peel after double peel. It's different. It's just different. It's, it's brought different skills. It's made life a little tougher for the leads and it's certainly made life tougher for the seconds. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's good. You're, you're making these players, these fantastic players, the best in the world, make tougher shots. So I think that's a good thing. You know, now, will it actually mean more steals in the end? It seemed to me there were more steals at the Women's Worlds. I didn't keep track. I'm not in charge of doing the analysis. It seemed like there were more. I think I can safely say, and I was talking to Graham Prouse, who's part of the World Curling Federation about this, the shots that the team with hammers had to make to win the game seems to be more difficult because there are more rocks in play. There's more things going on. And although the team with hammer still wins most of the time, the degree of difficulty of the shot is more difficult, which is more fun for the fans. So I think overall, I I think it's been a positive so far, but we'll see after the men's worlds. Uh, Tyler Tardy, Kevin says, and if this fits into what you're talking about, he's uh, Kevin Cooey's new third, yet another change on the curling team. Starting next year, right, Jimmy? Starting next year. Tyler talks about the no tick. He says, what if you can only tick a guard that is touching the center line? This still gives the team with the hammer a little bit of an edge over the one who doesn't. What do you say to that, Kev? If indeed we find out that there are way more steals right now, I, I just I'm not I'm not sure that's true yet. But let's just wait for the analysis. If it's true that all of a sudden, instead of a five percent or eight percent chance of stealing when the best are playing the best, it turns out to be a forty five percent chance. Well, then okay, hang, hang on, we've tipped the scales too much. But if it only goes from say you know eight percent to sixteen percent or fourteen percent. You know, that, that's, that's fair. I think you still have a huge advantage if you have last rock in the last end. I think we have to wait on that one, Tyler. I don't think there's any need to make it easier to win the game yet. Curdy Tractor, we dig dirt. Thanks a lot uh, for them sponsoring Hot Rock Topics. Uh, let's whip along now. Mailbag, uh, an interesting uh, email we're going to get to that's brought to you by Nestle Boost. Up your nutrition game with Boost. Convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. This is from Dave Carey. Hi, guys. It's often said that every shot in curling is a four-person shot. In addition to the thrown rock, a good shot requires both proper sweeping and a correct line call. My question is this. What percentage of a shot's success or failure would you attribute to each of those elements? Does it vary by the type of shot thrown? Does this have implications for how we judge players with regard to their shooting percentage in an event? For example, if a team consistently misjudges the ice with the line calls and sweeping, wouldn't that lower a player's statistics, even though they might be throwing the rock exactly as requested. That's from Dave Carey. Warren, what are your thoughts on that? Dave, thank you for a great email. Some really good points made. It's it's based on a shot called shot made, and it's a, a one to four rating. There is a more sophisticated one to five rating that is only used with very uh, experienced scores. But these things you mentioned are not taken into consideration. And you're right. I think particularly today with the carving involved uh, with some of these good sweepers, they have huge influence on whether that shot's going to be successful or not. But there's no way of determining in the shot percentages whether or not this has had an impact on it or the call. So you bring out some really good points. How this might be addressed, I'm not too sure, but I'm really interested in hearing what Kevin's got to say about it. Yeah, you know what? It happens in curling where you throw a really good one and and you're trying a hit and roll you asked what shots are, are impacted more by the four-person team. Well, certainly a come-around bump, because now you're dealing with weight and line, or a hit and roll, where there's more than one thing. A draw to the button with no guards around, 
Well, that's more just speed of the sweepers. Line isn't such a worry. An open hit, wide open hit with the sweepers today. You take one inch of ice, throw it clean, you'll be making the shot. But the but the come around bumps and things where it's line and weight so that the thrower throws and gives their first and then the sweeper relays to the skip the weight. Is it good? Hair heavy? Hair light? Then the skip can go, okay, it's a little heavy, a little wide. Whoa. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's all that communication going back and forth. So you're right. It, it impacts the percentage of the shooter. But I don't, I don't see that being a problem. It's a team game. And your percentages as a team and as a person are indicative of how good your team is. So if you're having trouble with somebody with line call, putting in the wrong broom, that's something that needs to be dealt with as a team. Like, why is that person not brooming it properly? Why is that sweeper jumping the rock right out of my hand all the time and causing the line to go wrong? Or why is the thrower just throwing it a little bit heavy all the time? Quit throwing it so hard. <laughs> it won't go back eight. Give me a chance to sweep the darn thing. And that's why curling is such a wonderful sport. That's why we all love it. It's a true four-person sport, and you're not going to make the shot if the sweepers aren't sweeping properly, if the person holding the broom doesn't give you the right amount of ice, and if the line caller doesn't call the line correctly. So what a great sport. Thank you for the email. You just need all those parts to be working in sync to shoot 90%, which is needed at in a world-level competition now. And at the club, if you shoot 70, you're a darn good curler. So thinking off the top of my head, maybe with sophisticated scorers, we could have a six-point system where it's four for the shot, one for the degree of difficulty, and one for the technical assistance of the sweepers and the caller. There could be an additional point added. So... Maybe there is a way. I don't know. Let's put Warren in charge of teaching everybody that yeah, six. I, <laughs> if he's the skip, okay, he's going to take all the all the credit. Okay, it's a good. If they throw a bad one, I can see Hansel going like that. What the hell are you guys doing, <laughs> sweeping that way? <laughs> anyway, there we go. Uh, thanks a lot to Nestle Boost. That's our uh, email segment. And Dave Carey, you are going to get a copy of Warren's book, Sticks and Stones, which is all about how curling got into the Olympics. So. Uh, you can look forward to that. Um, here we go. Hear that right there, boys? We got a guest coming up shortly. Stick around, and he's a great guest. Okay, here we go. Uh, we mentioned at the top of the show... Uh, that we've got a great guest on, and uh, congratulations. Uh, this guy needs no introduction. Uh, 13 Briars uh, with the province of Quebec. A couple of silver medals with Guy Hemmings, and uh, we want to certainly talk to him about that. Uh, but uh, he is the reigning world champion, and uh, congratulations, Pierre Charette. You coached Terenzoni's team. Uh, how does that sound, Pierre, world champion? Uh, it sounds great. I, I feel so... Uh... So relieved for the girls, you know, like um, Beijing was a, a tough pill to swallow. Um, they played great all week. Kind of a funny format in a round robin where you play everybody. You wouldn't get anything uh, more than the others by winning eight games compared to teams that win five. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that's the process at the Olympics. I think it should be a page, a page system. Maybe we'll be down the road, but we got on a plane right after the bronze medal game. One day earlier than we were supposed to go, we were supposed to stay for the closing ceremonies, but jumped in the plane. So we spent five hours at the airport, 12-hour flight back to Zurich. They went home for one night. Then we jumped in a car, went to Geneva, four-and-a-half-hour drive to try to defend their national title. Team De Cruz on the men's side did exactly the same thing. They went 0-5. That's how much energy they had left. They had nothing left in the tank. And... Believe me, we didn't have very much either. So to my, uh, I, I was stunned that they still got up for the games and you know, we, we, we didn't go undefeated. We went 6-2 to defend their world title. Well, let's talk about the uh, dominating performance. And I want to just get into a little bit about, well, the whole team, obviously. You were so strong. But Alina Petz shooting 90 for the event quite a bit ahead of the next closest skip. And you'll know exactly how close. I forget it, but it was a lot. And Esther, a new Schwander, same thing. So, so far ahead of the next closest second. I guess it's just sort of a question of how how do, does this team separate itself by such a margin from the competition? The competition's really good, Pierre. Like the, the, the people they're playing against are really good. But the difference between the percentages of the Swiss team, of Terenzoni's team, and the rest of the field, how, how do you explain that? It's just, it seems to be quite wide. 
I think Alina is a special player. I mean, uh, I have never seen a last straw thrower that can get this hot for an event. Like, I mean, she's not always super consistent. You know, where you, you, there were some events where she struggled, but when she's confident and she she makes a few uh, a few good shots to you know to start an event. Oh wow! I always told my teams, you know, our skip's not always going to play his best, but when he does, we have to win. You know, we have to make sure that we we support our our, our, our skip, and we have to make sure that we play decent enough because he's going to make everything this week. You know, you can feel it, and that's the way you feel when you play with Alina Pets. When Alina's confident that she can draw the side of the pin or make this run back double or hit and roll at any time. Yeah, it's a fun game to play. That was my next point, and I'll let Warren in. I had a great time in Prince George getting to watch the spectacle, which was uh, your team's play. But uh, to your point, all three players in front of Alina, of course, have every shot, and they just played great. It doesn't seem to matter if it's a run through, in turn draw or out turn draw, or hit and roll, hard or soft weight. That's unusual. Like of all athletes, there's people that are a really good draw player and a good hitter, but maybe not as good at hitting or vice versa. There just doesn't seem to be a shot where if I were skipping against Alina, I go, well, I really want Alina to play this. I get I get what you're saying, you know, like, uh, for example, that Korean team or or Fujizawa from Japan, you know, they, they, they'll freeze, freeze, freeze you to death, but they might not be as good, to, you know, to play it, to make a high weight double or a run back and stuff. But but Alina's got all the shots. But believe me, she worked so hard the last two years. You know, when I go in Switzerland, we do these weekly camps, and and uh, you know, I usually go on one one sheet with one player, and the other three will work on something else on the other player. And when I'm one on one with her, she's always say, you know, give me run backs, give me run backs, give me angle raises, give me double peels, give me run double. You know, we knew she could draw with anybody, but she wanted to improve that, and obviously she did. And her and Silvana, over the last three years, I've, I've got together on the strategy, got together on on the confidence level. Silvana's a great strategist. I think she's the best skip calling the game in a women's game. Many times, me, I, I look like, oh, oh, we're in trouble, and she finds a way to, to move the rocks around or to create an angle here, an angle there, so that uh, her and Alina have a shot. Usually works out. So it's been a work in process, believe me. Uh, they got together um, three years ago. You know, we all said Asselborg's the best team in the world, so this is the team that we have to find a way to, if we want to be the best, we have to maybe change a few things, uh, improve some of the areas of their game. And they did. Okay, Pierre, let's talk a bit about, uh, I guess, the Olympics and uh, the women's worlds. And what I'm referring to is seemingly the new gold standard for world-level play, and that's 90%. Both at the Olympics, again, as, as you've already mentioned, with the women's worlds, Elena shot in the 90s. Do you think this is where we're heading for the future? If you're going to win at the world level, your team is going to have to be up there in that 90% range to do it? Pretty close, Warren, uh I, I think this this is uh, was one for the ages. Ninety percent at this level is difficult, especially if you're all the good teams are playing each other. It it really felt like a, like a men's final. Both teams played amazing. Like uh, we got up early, we're two up, we're two up with. So obviously you got to play to the scoreboard, and then you 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 know you say to yourself, all oh, the other team has to take chances now. They did. They made all the shots. You know, at the fifth ten, I said, "Well, let's let's keep playing the scoreboard." You know, if they don't miss, we're going to be tied coming home with. And they didn't miss, so we were tied coming home with. We stayed patient, stayed patient. I don't think it was our, our uh, you know, our move to put guards in front and play to the center against that team. They're just fantastic, and then we didn't need to. So I mean, I mean, I don't think we're going to see another skip play ninety percent for fourteen curling games. When have you ever seen a skip have a higher average than the best lead of the week? We talked earlier in the show, but I mean, I've gone through those percentages from Prince George, and uh, it, it's quite amazing. And it's interesting to see how, as percentages drop per team, that's where the teams drop in placement. But as Kevin always says, you play well, you win. If you shoot high percentages, you win. And that certainly was the case. Let's talk about uh, Swiss women. Really interesting situation. We go back 10 years. They've won the world women seven years out of 10. Unbelievable record. What has happened with women's curling going back to 10 years ago in Switzerland that has made them so dominant? Uh, honestly, uh, I, I would like to 
praise the, maybe the Swiss curling that they have a great the program or whatever, but they don't. It's just the players themselves. It's the Marion Hutt. It's the it's the Felcher. It's the Tiranzoni, Alina. They, they just work their ass off. They just they get ice July first. They have a, a, a fantastic training center in Beale. Great ice. Mike, the ice maker, will make it curl five feet if we want. We might make it curl one and a half foot. And they start practicing July first. And I mean, it's it's. I would say they're on the ice four times a week in July. In July, you know, that's what you need to do. And Team Terranzoni is pulling the other teams too, because you you know, if you want to compete with them, if you want to beat them one day, you you have to do the same. So this uh, young team Kaiser is, is a really really good and upcoming team, and they're all in their twenties. Two out of three final at the nationals, they beat us one game, and and uh, and uh, and the other games were really tight. So. They're, they're, they're an up-and-coming team. Yeah, you, you got you got Irene Shorey, who's a world champion. She she had a a, a really good team also. Briar Erleman and her sister. That's a, a really good team and a good little junior team that won again and is going to the worlds. They're a really really good team too. So those are the teams I saw. They're the only four teams in the program. Don't think that they're professional curlers. They all have jobs. But the thing in Switzerland is that if you're in a national program of any sport, you can ask your employee to work 40%, 60%, 80%, and they're very flexible. Like uh, Silvano actually took the year off because she figured it was her last time, last chance to go to the Olympics and stuff. So she concentrated on training and curling, uh, practicing the whole, uh, the last year and a half, actually. But Alina was still working. Esther has a accounting business. Melanie is a physiotherapist, and she has her own business. That's really interesting about the employment situation and the government in Switzerland, how, how that all works. That's uh, quite amazing. Let's talk about you for a moment. You're a teacher by trade, a golf professional. And so how did you become involved with coaching? And in particular, how did you start with this team? Well, uh, my, my first experience, I guess, was a little bit with Jean-Michel Menard, you know, when I was the fifth with them at their last five briars. Bob, or their dad, was listed as the coach. I was listed as the fifth, but I was really there as a coach. Bob was more there as their sports psychologist, doing an amazing job. So that, that was like kind of my first contacts. And I did uh, coach um, Marie-France Larouche in uh, one of the Scotties up in Grand Prairie. But besides that, helped out a little bit, uh, you know, a couple of times with Team St. George in, in Quebec, uh, you know, Laurie's team, uh, upcoming team. I wish I could I could add a little more time to help him out, but I really didn't. But uh, Team Terenzoni was like three years ago. You know, I, I've known them for since 2012 and they started coming playing in the slams and got kind of really close to them. And we... Uh, and they kind of asked me, you know, how would you like to coach us, you know, at the Europeans, the Worlds, the the non-slam events because, you know, uh, I, I think it's a conflict of interest if I coach them at a, at a slam, but uh, I still, you know, I can still see their progress and watch them play and see what they need to improve when we go back to Switzerland. So that's kind of how it came about. Not easy, but I mean, when you can work with one of the top, maybe three, four five teams in the world, no matter who it is, it's a challenge because it's like in golf, if you're teaching a scratch handicap that wants to get better, He's already a scratch handicap. So what do you do? You try to improve some little things here and there. It's not easy because they're already that good. And after watching Kevin and Glenn Howard and Dean and Moat or whatever, you know, for years in the slams, Kevin Cooey's and, you know, the Jacobs and McEwen's or whatever, I, I kind of have my theory of how the game should be played and what, what tendencies the teams have. And uh, it was fun to apply them on a, on a really, really good team to see if it would help them. I think it did. I mean, I, I really think it did. And, and I'm really proud of that. And I'm, and I, and I'm proud that, uh, that the girls believe in a few little things that I brought up. And I think it makes them play with a lot of confidence. And that's what I like to see. Pierre, how, how much time would the would the team spend over in North America? I know I remember talking to Sylvana years ago about the Grand Slams and how important that was to the growth of their team. Not because of the practice time. They put in a ton of practice. Be able to come over to North America and have these big events where they can try out the whatever they've been practicing and go at the Slams 
go back home, work on something, come back to the slams, do it again. Um, your thoughts on that? Because it seems to me the teams that are spending a lot of time in North America have really improved a lot in, in both the women's and men's games. We're talking women's today. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're so right. I mean, uh, the slams are, you know, it's best on best. And there's no better measuring point to see where your team is at is to play a couple of slams, you know. You win a few little events in Europe or you, you win a few little events in Canada and then you finally get in the slam and then you go one and four or one and five the first time you say, oh, I, I better work harder. And that's what the whole world did in the last 10 years. And there's no doubt that Asselborg or Tiranzoni or, or, you know, the, they will never, they would never miss a slam. You know, it, it's their occasion to play on great ice against the best teams in the world and see where they're at. Like you say, you go back home and go work again if it doesn't work. <laughs> right. Well, see where you're at. I think that's a great statement. Exactly what the slams are. That's where you really notice where you fit in in the world of curling. It's how you do it, those slams. Exactly. Last thing I wanted to ask about was the last stone draw, of course, led the field there too. Is there a certain way, I know the Canadian public, we get, we get a ton of messages about this. Um, why... Canada's not near the top generally. I think this time, not bad. I'm thinking fifth or something for the draw to the button totals um, for Kerry Anderson this time for the Canadian team. Is there a certain way that your team trains so that they're good at that? Or is it just like they can shoot 90, they can draw the button too? <laughs> there's there's got to be something more to it, Pierre. They start a lot of practices when we when we go to training center in Switzerland. They'll get right on the ice, Kevin, no, no uh, practice shots. And they will throw draws until they get three in a row in a forefoot. If you throw two that touch the forefoot, the next one is light or is heavy, they start again. Same player, same players. Sometimes it took half an hour before Alina threw three, three in a row, three in a row, three in a row. And, and it's part of their routine. So they have a good feel on what, even when the ice is fresh, when it's like first practice. And obviously, the, the person that goes last, the ice is, is really, really quick. So it's kind of a little easier. Yeah, they work at it. There's no doubt. They're just, it's not like I'm hoping for the best, you know. Uh, I'm sure you noticed that, uh, uh, Kevin, is that in the pregame practices, I don't know how many times I see the other team, they do their practice. The last two practices are right on the pin. And then they throw the, the one that counts and they're, they're heavy or they're way short. Well, of course, th then it's nerves, it's uh, focus. It's uh, Obviously, it's one of, one of the things in our team that we take a lot of pride on. When we miss one, you know, what it happened, uh, you know, you're allowed two bad ones and we had three bad ones uh, the last week. They were not happy, you know, like we, we were supposed to hit the button all the time. For them, it's like a normal part of a game. The game starts pre-game pre practice. Pierre, before we let you go, uh, we got to ask you about the rule changes. There, Everyone was all anxious and excited that the WCF was going to try three rule changes. In the end, they only did the no tick. What's your take on all that, Pierre, and, and, and the game changing? And should there be some rule changes in the game? I think the no tick is a, is a really good uh, addition. I mean, I think, I think it's going to be here to stay. They're just, they're just going to have to, um, to make the rule a little, a little more uh, clear. For instance, if somebody was on a on a on a center line, but the other team made the mistake to push you on the button, for example, well, the the rocks go back to where they were. So I said, really? Like, I mean, the other team really throws a bad one. I cannot leave the the situation as it is. Like the non-offending team usually always has the choice, but the way they wrote the rule, it said it had to go back. So I'm hoping they're going to change that. Because that's not the way we we introduce the rules and the, the rule in the in the Grand Slams at the players and at the uh, Champions Cup we will be doing the no tick. The stats are, are are a little weird though, guys. I mean, I'm convinced that the teams are happy to have their two guards in front and and figure they have a chance to steal. But in the slams, mind you, it's the best teams in the world. Um, th there were no more steals among the good teams than there were before. For the simple reason is that when you're forced to go around because somebody puts it in the no tick zone and then they put a second guard and you, you're again, you're not ticking. So you're, you're throwing one top button, top four. The other team has to work hard. Sometimes they even have to end up peeling those front guards that they put on. Otherwise, they have nothing to the button or whatever. So instead of making a tick shot now, if he makes it absolutely perfect, top four frozen on it with two guards, then uh, there's not that many steals. But 
at the Worlds, there were many, many teams that missed that center line, even though the ice was perfect. So it puts a lot of pressure on the lead to make those. And if they don't, then uh, at least you figure you have a chance to, uh, you know, with rocks and play, you have a chance to steal. But the stats don't show uh, more steals, at least at the slams for now. Pierre Charette has been our guest. Uh, congratulations again, Pierre, reigning world champion. You know, before you go, answer this. Um, how does a guy coach a, a team and they live 5,000 kilometers away? How are your air miles doing? How often are you on a plane? How does it all work, coaching Switzerland, yet you live in Ottawa? Since September, I was once I was away 31 days. Uh, the Olympic was more like 40 days. And we do always do a pre-camp the week before a big event. You know, if there's an event like a week later, I obviously don't come back. Like Kevin said, you know, they, they spend so much time in Canada and they usually stick around between events or, or they'll go to, um, you know, a holiday uh, in North America or something for a week. You know, go to Florida, you know, before the pandemic, they would go to Florida for a week, come back for the next event. When they come here, they usually go to Calgary to get rid of, of the jet lag and, and and do like a two-day camp, even before a slam or stuff, just to make sure you get you, you do everything you can to be prepared for the event. So we've got 16 of the 17 best teams on the men and women's side that are coming to the Players' Championship in about 10 days. It's the best field ever assembled. Every Absolutely everybody's there, The, the all the Olympic uh, medalists. Uh, and we've got some new teams like... Uh, Team Zacharias, who's going to be playing with, with Jennifer next year. It's going to be their first slam. They're really excited, and they and they played Tiranzoni in the first game. So this should be interesting. And on the men's side, we've got Ritorna as the Italian team who are, who are super excited to play in their first slam. That's a very, very good team, and I'm sure that the fans are going to be happy to see some uh, new faces out there. Pierre, go back to bed. You must need some sleep, man. Uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot for joining us. We really appreciate it. And congratulations again on being the world champion. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, uh, Warren. See you, Kev. Thanks, Pierre. Good luck. You betcha. Thanks, Pierre. See you, Pierre. Pierre Charette, thanks a lot, uh, world champion. Go, boy, great guy, got lots to say. Kevin, I've, I'm always uh, really intrigued when you hear these guys who've been around curling like yourself a long time when he said Anna Hasselborg is the team to beat now. Canada's not the team to beat anymore? What's up with that, Kev? Sports keeps changing, right, Jim? Like oh, 10 years, 20 years, when you get older, you look back and you remember Hexer Vey or you remember Sandra Schmerler or you remember all the people through the years who were these phenomenal players. Well, Anna Hasselborg is one of those phenomenal curlers, as is Alina Petz, as is Brad Gushu, and, and, and many, many, many others. And it keeps changing over time. We just have to keep, as a country in Canada, keep trying to get better and compete. And the teams around the world, like Hasselborg, they just keep getting better too. And that, that's all good. I don't think, I, I see nothing negative in any of that. Well, maybe Gushu can do it at the Worlds. Come on, Brad. Let's go, baby. Okay, Kev, you're on. Story time brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners, a proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. Kev, down memory lane, what do you, what do you got? Richard Harding. So he's a head of production and for broadcast. I first met Richard when I was in junior. I flew to Scotland to play in an event in, in uh, Inverness at Northern Scotland. Anyway, he was the guy who picked me up at the airport, and it's the first person, the reason I remember it so well is he was driving this white sports car, and it was the first time I saw a digital dash. So, like, where the, the, the numbers <laughs> light up instead of going in a circle, like, <laughs> like an old right, clock. Right, right, right. Anyway, yeah. first time. So, anyway, Richard, we've been friends now for, I don't know, it's got to be 35 years, I suppose, or more. Anyway, he was in Prince George, and we we're talking about this trip to Inverness. Kate Katniss, who's the president of the World Curling Federation, on that trip, our team of Rick Feeney and, and uh, Mike Berger and Dan Pedrick, we went to Inverness and we were billeted to homes. Well, Mike and I stayed at a, at a, at a doctor's house, and I remember they had a daughter, uh, Abigail, cute, cute kid, and and we loved staying there. And I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember their names, but Dan and Rick stayed at Kate Katniss's house. 
and they built it. And her son um, was such a good pool player. He was about 12 at the time. He, and I was a good pool player back then. So we must have played 100 games of pool on their pool table. So anyway, we played at a curling club called Green Acres Curling Club, which actually Richard now owns. But the guy that owned it at the time and made the ice was a fellow by the name of John Stevenson. And this was a real awakening to curling for me, Was because uh, I was from Canada and the curling clubs are a little different in Canada at the time than they were in Scotland. Anyway, this John Stevenson comes out on the ice to, to pebble before the game. And of course, here we have pebble cans that go over our shoulders or on our back, and we pebble one sheet at a time. Well, no, that's not the way it's done at that time there. They brought out the fire hose, this big hose out, and put a, an end on it and sprinkled the whole place. Like, just sprinkled it, and he had his Scottish Terrier dog walking with him. <laughs> and I, it's a picture that I'll never forget. The guy's walking down, walking down with his, just like, a, it's like, it covers the entire building. And then the hacks weren't hacks like they're stuck in the ice, like in Canada. They're actually blocks that had big kind of like nails sticking out of them and they stick them in these holes in the ice. So the ice is all flat and then you stick them in and you can stick them in the left hand holes or the right hand holes, depending which hand you throw with. And then we start the game and the ice was actually really good. It was just a different way of looking at it. And it was, it was John Stevenson at Green Acres. Every time he'd pebble his ice, the dog would walk with him. And the dog was, of course, a Scottish Terrier. I can see this now, Kev. You know, the skips yelling goes, did that rock pick? And the guy goes, no, no, it hit it. It hit a paw print. Yeah, it hit a... <laughs> yeah, it was a bunch of paw prints. I don't know, this dog is... Uh... <laughs> it was so many years ago, Jim, but I remember it like it was yesterday because it was so special. But he really, he did a lot for junior curling. He, uh, he would look after the ice and always make sure that the kids are always welcome. So... Yeah, I just wanted to make note of that. Right on. Uh, thanks a lot to Meridian Manufacturing. That's a great story. I love that. I, spraying all the sheets. That's what I do. Okay, we'll get them all at once. Everyone get out of here. We're going to clear them all up. There we go. Uh, another show in the books, uh, boys. That was uh, fantastic. And, and thanks a lot to Pierre Charette for coming on. He must, he must be over the moon with being the world champion. We'd also like to extend a big thank you to Rod Pulse and his company, In-House Strategies. He handles all our stuff on Facebook. You want to send us an email, and we'd love to get them, insidecurling at gmail.com. And, of course, if we read your email, you're going to get a copy of Warren's book. Kevin, you're on your way to Vegas. Are you a gambler, Kev? Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll do a little bit of action, yes. Uh, am I hooked on the action? Not so much. But I will have some fun in Vegas. How can you not have fun in Vegas? Yeah, go lay some bets on the curling. Warren? What's up for you, Warren? You know, you never sleep, as we know. You never. <laughs> well, Jim, as soon as this show is over, I will start working on the next Inside Curling podcast. <laughs> Couldn't do it without you. Take it easy, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Curling. Thanks a lot, Kevin. We'll see you, Warren. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jimmy.